morning uh, to the book of Romans chapter 9. Sunday morning studying uh, the book of Romans together. Come now to chapter 9, verse 6. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just flag them and they'll put one in your hand, marked to our passage today. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, this morning. You pick things up in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 6, and uh, we'll go through the chapter here because it's all one thought with the Apostle Paul. He kind of is prone to this kind of thing. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is just one long sentence. He gets going and is wonderful. But he says, but it is not... Uh, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, uh, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said uh, to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated." And what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to the, uh, to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. And therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And you shall say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, are you, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me uh, this? And does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with such long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles? As He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is, was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish his work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of uh, Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. And what shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained the righteousness to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him that is, Jesus will not be put to shame. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank You always for the privilege of turning to Your Word. We also acknowledge that it is a book that we cannot understand, independent of the revelation of Your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that You would freshly fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that You would give us, Lord, wisdom and discernment as we study this passage today, and that You would give us supernatural revelation. Allow us to enjoy it as well in the context of our personal relationship with you today. Speak to us by your word and through your word today we ask, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one of the cardinal rules of teaching and preaching from the Bible is to never apologize for a sermon ahead of time. And uh, uh, it's never uh, afterward, of course, sure, uh, never a good idea even then. And this doesn't constitute an apology in any way. But I do want you to know that if you're not yet a Christian and you're here today, and, uh, or you're relatively new uh, to the Bible, it's important for you to understand that what we're looking at this morning is really one of the deepest and most technical passages, perhaps the uh, most technical passage in the entire Bible. And uh, I don't want you leaving here today uh, having uh, listened to the teaching related to it and, and come to the idea that the entire Bible is like that and uh, incomprehensible perhaps to you uh, and to realize that we are in kind of a special place. It's uh, worthwhile. It's in the Word of God. It's important. And, uh, but if you get lost a little bit, you shouldn't feel uh, that you're alone. Lots of people, most people in, get lost in Romans chapter 9. Uh, historically. So, uh, just that little bit of a, a forewarning here. It is important to remember, as we've seen in the, the last couple of weeks, that chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans are written by the Apostle Paul with a very, very specific group in mind. He is writing this, uh, these three chapters, uh, specifically to the Jewish Christians who are a part of the church in Rome. That's why this is the letter to the Romans. And that Roman church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, but now he puts his focus upon the Jews in these three chapters. And, uh, and, and you see the, the term uh, Israel, Israelites, Jews, repeated over and over and over again uh, in the chapters and specifically in, in this chapter. And, and Paul knows that as this letter was being read at some point in, in, before the church in Rome, that is, the Jewish Christians in that congregation listened to the first eight chapters that Paul wrote that questions would immediately come to their mind that would not come to the mind of the Gentile Christians. Questions like, uh, does the fact that we are God's chosen people not apply to us anymore? Uh, question like, what advantage is there now to being a Jew? 
if God has chosen to save both the Jews and the Gentiles in exactly uh, the same way? Uh, Why is it that there are so few Jewish Christians uh, in comparison to the number of Gentiles who are Christians? Or is God through with the Jewish people as a people and as a nation? And if God is through with the Jewish people uh, and they've been replaced in some way, then what about all of God's promises to them in the Old Testament that are yet uh, to be fulfilled? And Paul answers those questions in these three chapters, 9 through 11. And and, and though they are written principally with the Jewish Christian in mind, uh, they really do have a lot to teach us and make some things fall into place for us, even as uh, Gentile Christians. And a Gentile is simply a non-Jew, which constitutes an overwhelming majority of us here today. I think that in order to uh, attempt to properly understand uh, verses 6 through 33 in chapter 9, I think it is vital to understand uh, the method that the Apostle Paul uses in writing this uh, book of Romans and to understand uh, the questions that he's answering in these verses. Paul's pattern in writing the book of Romans is, as he's writing it, he feels as if he's got an audience in front of him. And uh, what he does is he starts to, as he's teaching and as he's writing, so to speak, he anticipates here in these chapters that a Jew is sitting before him, uh, a Jewish Christian. And, uh, but throughout the book, even Gentiles, to anticipate the questions that might come to the minds of his readers, and then he poses those questions to this uh, imaginary uh, uh, hearer or partner, and then he proceeds to answer those questions. And it's a style of arguments that, that is known as diatribe, and it's a very, very uh, effective method of teaching. Examples of this fill the entire letter. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Romans chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes and he says, And do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing these things and doing the same things, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's posing a question. These kind of questions, when they're posed to an audience, it engages them. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He does the same thing in chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers the question, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? He begins chapter 7 in the same way. Verse 1, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Virtually the entire chapter, chapter 8, follows this uh, model. Let me prime the pump for you. Verse 31, in our recent memory, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's this questioning. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And he follows this method all the way uh, through the book. And I've uh, cited a handful of them here for you, but realize the book is filled uh, with these kind of questions and answers. Now, uh, I don't think that anywhere in the entire book is the, the understanding of the question that Paul is posing 
and that he is now answering. I don't think that is anywhere more vital than in this section of chapter 9. If we do not know what question he is asking and the question that he is answering, we will have no hope of understanding what answer he is giving. And uh, if we don't understand the question properly, then we will begin to give emphases to his answer that are not supremely what he's, uh, this chapter is about. And I think that's historically true uh, in the church. I think it's also important to realize again that these chapters are written to the Jewish people concerning the Jews as a people. He is not in, in talking about God's plan for them as a people. And it's important to realize that chapter 9 itself, uh, it's not supremely about predestination. It's not supremely about election. It's not supremely about an individual's salvation. Paul speaks of it as a supporting argument in the chapter. But what he's talking about here is not individuals. He is talking about the Jewish people as a whole, as a people, as a nation, and, uh, and uh, as a group. And so uh, the chapter begins talking about the Jew, uh, where Paul refers to them in chap verses 1 through 5, as we saw last week. He refers to them as his brethren, countrymen according to the flesh, and he ends it in, in verses 30 through 33, uh, talking about the Jews and their unbelief. Well, this is all about uh, the Jews and, and the nation of Israel and the Jews as a people. I'm convinced that the single great question uh, that Paul is answering here in these verses of 6 through 33 is this. Why is it that, comparatively speaking, that so few Jews have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior in comparison to the number of Gentiles who have done so? And because this is true, and no one could deny it, no one can deny it today, and because this is true, does this represent some kind of failure on God's part in the light of His Old Testament promises to the Jews? And this is what's indicated in, in, uh, by Paul in verse 6 as he uh, writes there, but it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. This is what he's addressing here. Uh, the, the same verse in the Amplified Bible. However, it is not as though God's Word has failed or is coming to nothing specifically concerning the Jews. The New Living Translation puts it this way, well then, has God failed to fulfill His promise to Israel? And again, uh, the idea is, is Jewish unbelief the fault of God? Does it represent a failure of God? in some way. And Paul's short answer here is that no, it is not the fault of God. He, and he declares that the general unbelief of the Jews is not uh, due to some lack, uh, some failure or some lack of faithfulness on God's part, 
but that it lies solely uh, as a result of the failure on the part of the Jews, that it is the product of their rebellion and their unbelief, and that these are traits that have marked the Jews in general in their relationship with God uh, throughout their entire long history with God. And any reader of the Old Testament can uh, attest to uh, that fact, that their history is not one of general getting in line with God's plan on anything, but it is God's plan and dealings with them has always been met by a general uh, rejection or rebellion by the Jewish people as a whole, resistance. And Paul begins by writing uh, in answer to this, for they are not all Israel who are uh, of Israel, in verse 6, uh, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. And when he says that they are not all Israel who are uh, Israel, in other words, being a Jew, Paul is saying, is more than possessing a physical bloodline that goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, in order to be a true Jew, there is a spiritual dimension to all uh, of it if someone is going to be a Jew according to the law of Moses. From the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Moses wrote, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And they had been judged repeatedly in their history, not because they weren't circumcised physically, uh, they adhered to that, uh, you know, to the letter of the law. But the reason they were judged continually throughout their history was because their hearts had not been circumcised as well. And in, in terms of their hearts, the idea is their, their, their lives their, were not holy or given over to God. This was the complaint that God communicated through uh, Jeremiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart." God is, uh, Paul has already addressed this issue, uh, that being a Jew is more than adhering to outward circumcision or outward rituals and rites, but it means to love God with the heart and to obey God uh, from the heart. Romans chapter uh, 2, verse 28, for he is not a Jew, Paul said, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And I think it's very, very good to be reminded that the name Israel was a name given by God to Jacob when he renamed him following their wrestling match uh, on the other side of the brook Jabbok. And when God renamed Jacob, whose name meant heel catcher or con man, 
uh, renamed him Israel. Uh, the word Israel means to be governed by uh, God. And that is to have a life that is marked, to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob, is to possess a life that is marked by obedience to God's Word inwardly and outwardly. Now, when Paul declares in verse 7, nor are they all children of Abraham because they are the seed of Abraham, he is making precisely uh, the same point. And it was the same point that John the Baptist made to the Jewish religious leaders during his public ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes, the Jewish religious leaders among them, that had come to be baptized by him, he said, brood of vipers. Now, that's the way to start a sermon. He said, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Famously and very pointedly, Uh, Jesus declared to these same religious leaders uh, in John chapter 8, verse 39, they answered uh, and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. It's not enough to be a part of the bloodline. Uh, You don't share his character at all. You don't share his faith at all. You don't share his godliness at all. And Jesus went on further to declare in that same conversation, you are of your father the devil, though circumcised physically, and the desires of your your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. In other words, again, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but they were not a part of the spiritual lineage of Abraham. This was an undervalued side of Judaism. In fact, it was almost non-existent at the time of of Jesus. And and, uh, spiritually, what Abraham uh, was, and instead of being what Abraham was spiritually, Uh, They were the children of the devil. They not only lacked Abraham's faith and his godliness and his spirituality, but at that very moment they were actively planning the the death of, of Jesus. And the single great point, I think, that Paul is making here in this section to these Jewish believers in Rome is that the general spiritual condition of the Jews toward God has always been rebellion against his ways, and that as a result, God has always, God has always been forced to move his salvation plan forward through a small, faithful remnant. And anyone that has even a a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament recognizes it to be true. 
You look at the book of Exodus and Joshua and Judges, the historical books, the major prophets, the minor prophets. It was always a very small remnant among the Jews who obeyed God, and God was able to move his plan of salvation forward in human history through them, namely in the bringing of his son into the world through uh, that, that bloodline. And Paul was letting these Jewish Christians know that they now constituted the small faithful remnant among the Jews now in their moment in human history and in their moment in God's salvation history and that they were small in number among the Jews in general, that this was nothing new concerning the Jews. This had always been historically true concerning them, that God has always worked through a small believing spiritual remnant. Paul now exemplifies this in verses 8 through 13, and he exemplifies it in in Jewish history first through Isaac in in verses 7 through 9. Abraham, the great father of the Jews, the father of faith, You might remember he had two sons. He had one son, the most famous of the two, by the name of Isaac, who was born to Sarah, just as God had promised Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2, God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 15, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram said to Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, my servant? And then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, not your servant, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And God said to him, So your descendants shall be. And Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness." And then later in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 15, God comes to Abraham once again, and he said, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall no longer call her Sarah, Ai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her, and then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her." And when God makes this promise that Sarah is going to bear a child with Abraham, it was very significant because Sarah was, up to this point in time, she was barren. But God promised to Abraham, I am going to give you a son. I'm going to keep my promises through a son I will give you through uh, Sarah. You might remember uh, that Sarah and uh, that Abraham had another son by the name of Ishmael. And he was born to Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. 
And Ishmael, you might remember, he was a work of the flesh. Sarah and Abraham got tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promise of giving them a child. And so uh, they said, all right, Abraham, why don't you go into my handmaiden Hagar and bring forth. We'll help God fulfill his promises. He seems to be uh, stumbling here uh, a little bit. And so as a work of their flesh, uh, they uh, endeavored to help God keep his promise to make uh, Abraham's descendants as the stars in, in the heavens in number. And both Isaac and, and Ishmael, both of them were descendants of, of Abraham. But salvation would come into the world through Isaac. Isaac was born as a fulfillment of God's promise. It did not come through Ishmael. The, the product of human effort and the product of the flesh. And the point that Paul is making here is that though these Jewish Christians in the church at Rome, they were cut off now from Judaism in general at the time and, uh, and complete with Judaism's uh, effort to attain to salvation uh, in, in, a, in the imagery of Ishmael on the basis of the flesh and human effort, and Paul is saying, despite all of that, despite the nation as a whole going the way of Ishmael, spiritually speaking, God's blessing is upon you, the remnant there in that church, the remnant of the Jews, because of your faith in Jesus, God's promised Messiah. He then exemplifies it through Jacob in terms of Jewish history in verses 10 through 13. Yes, we are making progress. And... Uh, 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 Jacob was one of the three great patriarchs of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, and uh, you might remember that there, as he speaks here of Isaac and Rebekah, they come together and they are married, and Rebekah is with child. She finds out that she is carrying twins. And the firstborn of the twins was a man by the name of Esau. The second born of the twins was a man by the name uh, of, uh, that they named Jacob. And now, according to all Jewish tradition, uh, the firstborn, Esau, should have been given the birthright. He should have had the, the uh, prominent place within the family. But instead, God determined, even before they were born, that his salvation plan concerning the Messiah, it would move forward in human history not through Esau, but that it would move forward through Jacob. And Esau, as you, if you're familiar with him at all, he didn't have a spiritual bone is in, in his entire body. Uh, a man just entirely given over to uh, his uh, fleshly appetites, his body appetites, as somebody said, as he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, he was all kitchen and no chapel. And that was the truth about uh, Esau. But the point that, that Paul is making here is that Ishmael and Esau, though each of them descendants of Abraham, they had no promises attached to them in the way that Isaac and in the way that Jacob uh, uh, did. In other words, Isaac and Jacob were God's choice in his plan to provide salvation to the world, uh, just as Jesus became that salvation. 
and that this Savior would come through their lineage as opposed to uh, what uh, Judaism at the time in which Paul writes this uh, characterized by Ishmael and Esau. Uh, determined to attain salvation by way of human effort and lacking any true spirituality. And what matters ultimately concerning salvation is not numbers. It never has. It doesn't matter how many people believe this or that, uh, but rather who is aligned with God's promises And in trusting in Jesus, these Jewish Christians, though a very significant minority among the Jews, were aligned with God's promises. You remember Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount by declaring, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. It does not matter salvation. What is right in terms of spiritual truth is never to be determined uh, solely or even supremely on the basis of how many people believe this way versus how many people believe this way, because always historically, It has been a severe numerical minority who has been faithful to God even among the people who claim to represent the God of the Bible. Now, uh, uh, one comment before we leave this section about God declaring, Esau, I have hated, so we don't understand, uh, misunderstand the heart of God. It's a quote that uh, Paul brings from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And when God uh, declares, Esau, I have hated, uh, it, 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 it's hatred in the sense, uh, not an absolute sense, but a, a, a relative to a higher uh, choice. Uh, Jesus used the same kind of uh, way of saying something for emphasis when he declared in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. It cannot mean that we are to literally hate our mothers and our fathers because uh, Jesus taught that we are to honor our fathers uh, and our mothers. And so it's a figure of speech. It means to love less by comparison. And uh, God's lo- uh, love uh, it, it, with the idea of showing less favor to. God showed the greater favor uh, to, uh, to uh, Jacob. Now, Paul's uh, second question here, and in his subsequent answer to that question, is in verses 14 through 24. And the question that he poses now is there in verse 14, when he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God in all of this? In other words, is God being unrighteous toward the Jewish people as a whole in choosing to keep his promises to them concerning salvation through a godly remnant who has chosen to trust in Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior, and then in rejecting the efforts of those Jews who were determined to attain salvation through human effort, 
or they think they are deserving of salvation regardless of any spiritual reality uh, being present within their life. And the Apostle Paul's answer is, it makes up verses 15 through 24, and the short answer in verse 15 is certainly not. And his elaboration covers the, re the remainder of uh, 15 through 24. And Paul then quotes in verse 15 uh, God's declaration to Moses. And the declaration is from Exodus 33, 14. You notice in verse 15, For he, that is God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In other words, Paul declares that God can choose to save mankind any way he wants to, and he has chosen to save the world through faith in Jesus Christ, and then to pour his mercy and his compassion out in an extraordinary way toward those who, he, who choose to do so. We cannot earn God's compassion and his mercy. And we cannot earn the ultimate expression of God's compassion and mercy, that is, salvation through human effort and through human willpower or works. God has chosen to save the world independent of human works. Ephesians 2, famously, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourself, it's a gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul then moves on, and he makes an illustration of, and an example of Pharaoh in verses uh, 17 and 18. And you might remember from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Pharaoh's attempt to resist God in God's desire to redeem his children, the Jews, from their bondage in Egypt. And he wanted to redeem his people from their bondage in Egypt by way of an exodus. And the, again, the account is found in, in the book named, uh, appropriately named Exodus. And as God endeavored to remove his people from uh, the, the bondage in Egypt, Pharaoh repeatedly endeavored to defy God in his plan. And the result was this series of ten plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt in order to secure the release of His people, the Jews, from uh, their bondage uh, there. It's important to realize that as this passage speaks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that God did harden Pharaoh's heart in, in that entire series of events but God only did so after a long season of Pharaoh hardening his heart uh, toward God. Only after Pharaoh had hardened his heart against the plea of God to release the children of Israel, hey, Pharaoh uh, hardened his heart against God's plea. He did so of his own will fully seven times. But, and only after that seventh time are we told then that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that is, God simply made him firm now in the choice that he had already uh, repeatedly made. And then Pharaoh, uh, the human responsibility is fully 
on display. God did not harden his heart uh, willy-nilly. And why does Paul bring Pharaoh up in talking about the Jewish people and addressing these Jewish Christians? It's because Pharaoh is an example of what the Jewish people as a whole were doing concerning Jesus as their Messiah. They were hardening their heart against that truth. And Paul is warning the Jewish Christians that there is a great danger in doing this. And in fact, it's a very good warning uh, for uh, uh, the Gentiles as well. Any person who is unsaved, every time a person hears the gospel, God's invitation to a human being to be saved and forgiven of their sins and then to be able to enter into a personal relationship with God through simply trusting in Jesus for that salvation. Every time a human being hears that offer from God and refuses to receive the offer from God, they must harden their heart at least a little bit in order to say no so that the next time the offer is made, it will be easier for them to say no. And the next time it will be easier still, and easier still, and easier still, as the person is progressively hardening their own heart to the gospel that God is offering uh, to them. And if it goes on long enough, a person can find their heart completely hardened toward God, and God can confirm them in that place. I, sometimes I will say, everybody has a right to hear the gospel at least once in our lifetimes. And that's the goal of missions in, in Christianity all around the world. But I think it's important for every human being to realize that God has a desire to, and wants each and every one of us to hear the gospel at least once. But, he may, but there's no guarantee, and, and we have no right to hear it a second time if we've heard it one time. We have no right to hear it a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time or a sixth time or a seventh time. We have no right to just harden our heart against God's offer and then to think that there are no consequences uh, related to this. And my heart is a result of that rejection. And that's why the Bible teaches today is the day of salvation. You, if you're unsaved in this room today and God's offer of salvation to do you, you will never be thinking more clearly and more soft-heartedly toward God than you are today. It will only be harder later, and if it is harder later, it is because you have made it harder as a result. There's a famous uh, song or hymn uh, called The Hidden Line, The Destiny of Men. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. 
Oh, where is this mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself hath sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and uh, where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? And answer from the skies is sent, ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. It is the whole story of Pharaoh. And Paul anticipates another question, which he presents and, and answers there in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? In other words, how can God find fault with someone if he hardens their heart and no one can resist his will? And Paul's answer is threefold, and I know how excited you are to hear that his answer is threefold at this point. But remember, there are five people in this room thoroughly enjoying this. So his answer, first in verse 20, is that he declares that our comparative ignorance and inferiority as human beings, we have no right to challenge God in this way. Second, Paul evokes an Old Testament imagery of the potter and the clay, declaring that just as the potter has the authority to do uh, as he pleases with a piece of clay, so too God has the right to do what he chooses with a human life there in verse 21. Now, it is absolutely important to honor the context of the passage that Paul is referring to here in, in bringing forth the potter and the clay imagery. It comes from the prophets of, prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and as God did with Pharaoh, uh, God was about to judge as he, as he prophesied through Isaiah and Jeremiah. He was about to judge the southern kingdom of, Ju of Judah for their rebellion, their willful disobedience to God, their disregard for his commandments. They were absolutely stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And God warned them like Pharaoh, and he warned them, and he warned them, and he warned them, and he warned them through Isaiah, Jeremiah, other prophets, and he warned them for over a hundred years. He was so patient with them to give them so many warnings. Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are the, although they are like, red like crimson, they shall be like wool. But continually they hardened their heart toward God, and ultimately God was forced to judge them, and they were taken captive into Babylon. But what the Jews were doing when Paul wrote this letter and their general rejection of Jesus as Messiah was a far greater sin in the rejecting of the Messiah. And, and it was setting them up for a far greater judgment, an eternal judgment. And you notice third in verses 22 through 24, Paul declares that God is then free to make something honorable of those who trust in Jesus for salvation 
verse 23, and to dishonor or to judge those who refuse his salvation there in verse 22. Concerning the salvation of the saved, Paul again mentions here predestination and and God's predestination, which we looked at in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and it comes out of his foreknowledge. He knows what every person is going to do with his gospel. And when Paul talks about the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 22, it speaks of the fact that they have prepared or fitted themselves for destruction by virtue of rejecting Christ. And God desires supremely to be glorified in saving people through putting our faith in His Son. But if a person rejects Christ and as a result uh, makes themselves a vessel of wrath deserving of God's righteous judgment, then God will ultimately be forced to judge. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He declared even in the Old Testament through Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? But if a person rejects that uh, salvation, then if he cannot glorify himself in the saving of a person, and that person chooses to reject that salvation, then God will glorify himself in judging that same person. But he will glorify himself one way or the other. Every human being will stand before Jesus Christ, and we will stand before him in one of two relationships. We will stand before him either him as our Savior or as our judge. But he will glorify himself in whatever role uh, we force him to take for eternity related uh, to our uh, lives. By Psalm chapter 76, verse 10, the psalmist writes and said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, speaking uh, of God. And his love can never, ever be expressed at the expense of his righteousness. If it occurred, uh, then it wouldn't be true love. And so he is uh, magnified, if not in the role that he desires to be as Savior, then he will magnify himself in the role of judge. And you might ask yourself, what does this have to do with Jewish Christians in the church at Rome? And Paul is reminding them of how serious an offense rejecting Jesus as one's Savior is. Not only in a great offense among the Gentiles, but also among the Jews. And Paul continues here in verses 25 through 29 uh, by showing uh, from the Old Testament Scriptures that historically only a godly remnant among the Jews uh, sincerely walked with God. Uh, understood what he was up to, cooperated with him in moving his salvation plan forward in human history. And as an encouragement uh, to them, 
Again, that they shouldn't be concerned that they represent only a small minority among the Jews as a whole. It has always been true of the Jews throughout history that God's salvation plan has advanced on the back of a small minority. And he quotes the prophet Hosea there in verse 25, and essentially in that uh, verse, I won't read it to you, but encapsulate it, he reminds them that Israel at one point in their history had so pushed God and, and, and sinned against God and pushed them so far in their history that he renamed them uh, Low Amy, not my people. And it was only by the pure grace of God that he forgave them and made them his people again. And, and Paul is saying thus, in the light of their history, no Jew should ever begrudge God's grace when God now has chosen to extend it in its fullness toward the Gentiles. And no Jew should begrudge the vast number of Gentiles who are being saved in contrast to the Jews given uh, 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 Jewish uh, conduct uh, in the Old Testament and even carrying into the New Testament. Then in verses 26 and, uh, 27 and 28, he quotes Isaiah chapter 10. And I want you to notice there in, in verse 27, he's very pointed with it, that that last uh, sentence of it, the remnant shall be saved. And to notice that, that word remnant, again, restating the fact that there's always been a godly remnant among a far larger number of Jews who got what God was doing and got in line with God and were saved as a result. And again, they should not be troubled by their minority status among the Jews as a whole. It has always been this way. And then Paul in verse 29, he quoted Isaiah again, where Isaiah prophesied that due to uh, Judah's great sin, that God's judgment upon them uh, by way of, of Babylon uh, would be so great that only a small remnant would be saved. And it happened as the Babylonian uh, armies came in and, de and destroyed uh, Judah and destroyed uh, uh, Jerusalem. A remnant was saved while the overwhelming majority of Jews were destroyed. And again, these Jewish Christians in Rome should not be troubled by their minority status among the Jews overall in terms of their unbelief in God's uh, salvation history and plan in human history. He's always advanced his plan through a godly remnant among the Jews. And the godly remnant of the Jews had taken up and they had stood up and taken their place under the old covenant. And now these Jewish Christians needed to do the same thing under the new covenant and not to consider it an odd thing. The chapter concludes in verses 30 through 33, and I really want to spend a lot of time here. I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> but Paul concludes with his explanation that the real cause of why so few Jews uh, were trusting in Jesus had nothing to do 
with God's fault, any fault on His part at all. But it had entirely to do in Israel's insistence on establishing their own self-righteousness before God as opposed to accepting the righteousness of God that is received through faith in Jesus Christ. And they refused to accept the righteousness that right standing before God, again, that comes through trusting in Jesus for salvation. And the Gentiles were flocking to this. They were running to that righteousness. But the Jews, instead, they were determined to establish their own righteousness before God upon the keeping of the law of Moses. And the problem was not with God among the Jews as a whole. Their problem was not the Gentiles supremely. The Jews themselves were responsible for their unbelieving uh, condition. And the very fact that they would be stumbled by Jesus, as Paul brings out here in quoting Isaiah, that they would be stumbled by Jesus, the chief cornerstone of our salvation, the very fact that the Jews in general would be stumbled by Messiah when he came was prophesied by Isaiah 740 years before uh, Jesus was born into uh, the world. None of this should have taken any believing Jew by surprise. It had always been uh, uh, declared. Jesus spoke of all of this to the Jewish religious leaders at the temple in his parable of the landowner. And he said to them in Matthew chapter 21, 42, he said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone, speaking of himself and his salvation, shall be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so all of this, as Paul closes chapter 9, it all comes back around to the original question that we began with, and that is why are there so comparatively few Jews trusting in Jesus uh, as opposed to the Gentiles? And is God at fault for this? Is God failing the Jews? Is that what's behind? Is that the explanation behind it? And the answer is this isn't the fault of God in any way. It's because the Jews readily accepted salvation on the basis of faith while the Jews refused it and chose instead to try and establish their own righteousness before God uh, on the keeping uh, of the law. And as a result, these Jewish Christians, though again a minority among their unbelieving brethren, uh, both then 2,000 years ago and even to this day, that they should not doubt God's promises or His faithfulness to Israel as a, resu a result. God has always moved His kingdom forward. He has always moved His salvation history uh, among the Jews forward through a godly remnant among the Jews. And so those Jews that Paul was writing to, he's declaring to them, you now 
are that godly remnant of Jews in the midst of this new uh, covenant. And so we come to the end of this particular chapter. I'd like to give you a hand, but I won't, because it's always an honor to uh, study God's uh, Word. But it sets the stage for where Paul is going to go now in more bite-sized pieces as we head into chapters uh, 10 and 11. But this is one long thought that he's laying out. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to get through that. I am not going to do the remainder of Romans chapter 9 in two or three studies. And so uh, I've done it, and um, uh, whatever that meant to you, um, I'm happy. And uh, so let's stand together. <laughs> uh, for, the, for the sake of the tape, I didn't uh, put on an applause light or anything like that. It's just a, a gracious congregation that loves uh, the Word of God. If you sit here today and you're not a Christian, let me just tell you one application that comes out of this. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, talking about salvation. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The issue is not, what do most of the people believe in this world? What are most of the people doing in this world in terms of their faith and a relationship with God and the spiritual side of their life and so forth? What matters is, what is true. And if broad is true, then go the broad way. But if narrow is true, and in this instance, salvation is very narrow, it's found in a faith in a single person, and, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And if that is true, and that is the truth about salvation, then we accept that, even if it makes us a minority within the world as a whole. There will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. They'd love to pray with you to receive Jesus as your uh, Savior today. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for the truth of it, and we always thank you for the privilege of being able to study your Word. We thank you for the depth of all of this. We thank you for the immense wisdom, the unspeakable wisdom and depth that uh, surrounds our salvation, Lord, but the simple way that you have made for us to enter into it. As Christians in this room this morning, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us through him. Thank you for making it so simple and so complete and preparing our heart for the most part as Gentiles to see our need that we could never establish a right standing before you and so to accept the one that Jesus provides. Thank you for the salvation that you have provided to us in him and we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.